This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, back in 1995, a group of homeless families had moved into an abandoned Catholic church building in North Philadelphia. They were told by the archdiocese that they had 48 hours to move out or they could be arrested. With nowhere to go, the families held their own press conference and announced that God had told them that they could stay until they found somewhere else to go. And out of this crisis to find housing for these homeless families, The Simple Way was born. One of the founding leaders of that nonprofit organization, The Simple Way, is my guest today. His name is Shane Claiborne. Shane is a champion for the most vulnerable in our communities and motivated by a desire to serve those most often forgotten. His vision has led him to jail, advocating for the homeless, and to places like Iraq and Afghanistan to stand against war. He has quite a story to share. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. Well, Shane, so good to have you on the show today. You are an author, a nonprofit leader, a community activist. So for my listeners, could you give us a bit of your background and what caused you to start The Simple Way and what is The Simple Way all about? All right, man. Yeah, it's great to be a guest on your show here. I'm a Tennessee boy, and I can't hide it. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, you know, coming today from Tennessee where I'm visiting my family. But I grew up down here, and then I went to college in Philly at, at Eastern University, a lovely school just outside the city. And while I was studying sociology, you know, I'm studying the Bible. It's a Christian liberal arts school. There was a catalytic event that happened in 1995, and that was a group of homeless families got together. And these were mostly mothers and children, and there were 3,000 families on the waiting list for affordable housing. So it was a crisis in Philly, and they got together and said, you know, we refuse to be invisible and to be isolated. Uh, and they band together, and they moved into an abandoned Catholic church building. Uh, on the north side of Philly. And we've got a lot of abandoned buildings. They found this one, which they said, you know, this is kind of special. It's an old church building, so we ought to be able to seek sanctuary there while we're, we're trying to get permanent housing. And sadly, what, you know, as, as things developed, the Catholic Church gave them an eviction notice and considered that they were trespassing, even though it was an abandoned church. And they uh, had 48 hours to move out or they could uh, possibly be arrested. <laughs> And we, you know, we heard about that at our, you know, suburban college and literally the newspaper uh, said church resurrected, you know, and it told the story of, of the you know desperate struggle of these moms and kids. And uh, almost 100 people were living in this building at the time, the church building. So we, you know, we had a prayer meeting that night, but there's kind of those times where you throw your heads up at God and you say, God, why don't you do something? And you, and you kind of hear God say back, I, I did do something. I, I made you, <laughs> you know, get down there. So we went down as students and on the front of the cathedral, the families had hung a banner that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Of course, you know, it, it took me a minute to, to you know, <laughs> digest that, you know, that 
Jesus was born in a manger because there was no room in the end. Like Jesus literally left all the comfort of heaven to join the struggle of those on the margins, you know, here and was born a refugee, was executed on a cross. So uh, it was a, you know, transformative time for me and for my college friends. And it was out of that, I mean, all kinds of things happened. Many of those families got housing. I actually ended up getting married in that same old abandoned church. And we were inspired by these families and inspired by the early church. And so we we moved into the north side of Philadelphia where we've got uh, all those abandoned buildings. We've got over 20,000 abandoned houses, over 15,000 vacant lots, abandoned lots, and, and 700 abandoned factories. So it used to be a very vibrant industrial area, and we've lost over 100,000 jobs. And so it's a neighborhood that struggles economically, but it is rich uh, when it comes to community. Uh, that's how people have survived. So we've we've learned and grown as much as we've given over the last uh, 25 years or so. So the simple way nowadays, it kind of feels more like a village. We've got a dozen or so houses and properties on the same block that we share. We try to welcome folks that are homeless or in recovery from drug addiction, folks coming out of domestic violence. We um, have taken over a lot of abandoned lots and turned them in community gardens, painted murals everywhere. There's an, you know, empty canvas and a vacant wall. Uh, so, uh, you know, over the years, that's just, we've, we've kind of been building a, a little village there. That's the simple way. That is so fantastic. What an interesting story. And, you know, what I've been impressed with is how you and your organization are very much on the ground level with those who are most vulnerable in Philadelphia. Now, your work is not easy work. It is really challenging work. And there are a lot of challenges you face every day, I'm sure. And then you throw in COVID-19, and I'm sure things have gotten even worse and more difficult. So perhaps you can talk about what have been the biggest changes in the services you have provided since COVID-19 has hit, not just with a simple way, because I also know you do other things beyond just a simple way. So what are you doing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? So, yeah, the, the pandemic has surfaced some already difficult things. It's been said when America catches a cold, uh, poor folks catch pneumonia, you know, and there's some communities, especially communities of color that have pre-existing conditions of 400 years of slavery and racism and inequity. And so the, the, the disproportionate amount of folks that are affected uh, in neighborhoods like mine is hit us hard, you know, and there's folks that are often invisible or, or we don't think of as particularly vulnerable, like folks in domestic violence where, you know, the home is, not a safe place to, to shelter at home and kind of exacerbates kind of already wounds that have existed. Folks in recovery, we have a recovery community uh, that we're connected to for folks recovering from mostly heroin, but other substance addictions. And they really rely on face-to-face -face meetings, you know, in, in recovery. So there's folks that are on the street that, you know, when it comes to uh, quarantining and sheltering in place, it's just, you know, not possible when you live on the street. So we've, we've done a lot of things to respond to that, uh, Rob. We've, we've done uh, um, escalated, kind of ramped up all of our food sharing, which we, we've already been doing for, you know, decades now, but we, we're doing more than we've ever done before. We're delivering bags to seniors. We're trying to be mindful of our young people who often rely on school lunches to make it. So uh, 
We're trying to, you know, fill some of those gaps. There's a coalition in Philly that we're proud to be a part of at the Simple Way, which is a bunch of different groups that, you know, incidentally probably wouldn't agree on everything, you know, politically or theologically, but we can agree that people uh, that are hungry need food. And so we band together and we've been feeding about 500 people a day through that collective. And we, we just uh, this week got 10,000 cliff bars donated to the Simple Way. <laughs> So that's a lot of cliff bars and we're we're grateful for those. You know, they're nutritious, so we're we're growing as much food as we can and trying to share it. But it also causes us to ask some questions around justice too. I mean, you know, things like access to health care, the inequities that exist in our school system, you know, as folks go digital now for much of our schooling, I think some of those inequities that are there are even more pronounced in the midst of this pandemic. So the good thing about that is I think people are seeing some of that. You know, they're seeing that folks are going bankrupt because they don't have health care or, you know, there's there's people that literally are just a paycheck away from losing their homes. And now, you know, when, when some folks' jobs are on pause, they are having a really difficult time making it. So I hope that the pandemic is softening our hearts, you know, rather than just overwhelming us. And, you know, there's many people that have said in different ways, we don't want to go back to normal (laughs) because normal wasn't working. We want this pandemic to be uh, an opening to some new possibilities and possibly to address some untreated wounds that have been festering for too long in our neighborhoods. The Simple Way, it's a nonprofit organization, of course, but it's also a community. It's more than just an organization. So first on the nonprofit side, because this show is dedicated to the nonprofit sector, what led you to start The Simple Way as a nonprofit, for example? I mean, you could have started as a church, maybe. You could have started as a business. Why a nonprofit? And then maybe, again, as you said earlier, you've you've handed things off. You've actually helped start and spearhead a lot of different nonprofits, and you're doing a lot more work now with uh, justice issues around the world. So maybe talk about about that a little bit too of how starting the simple way then just grew into all kinds of different uh, avenues of still with the heart of serving those who are most vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's interesting because we didn't really set out to start a nonprofit. We set out to be intentional neighbors, you know, to try to get to know our neighbors and see how we could become a part of the fabric of the neighborhood. Uh, but, you know, we, we started the nonprofit because we became convinced that it could be a very good tool for cultivating community and for creating ways of sharing money together and, and you know, donations of 10,000 cliff bars. You know, folks, sometimes folks need uh, a way to donate that, that you know, uh, I mean, for some people it's a tax write-off or whatever, but others I think they just want to know that there's some accountability to that. So I've often thought about uh, these nonprofit structures, the 501c3s and stuff, sort of like tomatoes need trellises for the, you know, for them to grow. And if you don't have any structure for your tomato plants, then your, your fruit just kind of flops around and rots. But if you have too much structure, um, it kind of, def- you know, it works against what you want. It, it sort of suffocates the plant. So we've, we've navigated this, this sort of dance with the structure that we have. So we've said, the, the nonprofit is here to cultivate community, not the opposite. You know, the nonprofit serves the community. It's not that the community serves the nonprofit. So uh, one of my friends says, uh, we don't create these businesses in order just to make money. We, we call ourselves not just a nonprofit, but an anti-profit. You know, that we want, we want to give, give it away as quick as we can and disperse it 
But what we also saw is that in our neighborhood, um, sometimes the outsiders coming in are seen as the ones that hold the keys to everything. And we believe just the opposite, that the folks in the neighborhood, the folks that have been directly impacted by these injustices, uh, have the best wisdom. They know what works and what doesn't work. There's helpful language we put to that, that our community is made up of remainers, returners, and relocators. So the remainers are the indigenous long-term neighbors. Some of them have been there longer than I have. One of them is the first Puerto Rican family that moved into my neighborhood, uh, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. They, uh, and now our neighborhood's really, really diverse. It's, you know, a lot of, uh, different kinds of folks, different people from different backgrounds, different ages. So it's a really beautifully diverse, uh, area. The returners are folks that maybe grew up in our neighborhood and they don't want to forget where they came from. So as they get uh, skills and training, they always have an eye to bring those resources back to the neighborhood to help restore it. And then finally, the relocators, folks like me that are from other places that come in, and we need to come with the right posture to listen and to learn. Uh, and one of my mentors, John Perkins, he has taught me a lot of this, and he said he taught me a proverb, too, that says, go to the people listen to them, love them, learn from them, build on what they know. Uh, and in the end, the people will say, we've done it ourselves, that we're not there to be these, you know, kind of messianic outsiders, but we're the, there just to unlock hope and and to unlock some of the, the gifts that have been sort of crushed uh, by poverty and inequity. Uh, so we, we really have that vision with everything that we're doing. Um, that the the folks that are best equipped to help women in domestic violence are folks that have survived domestic violence. You know, our recovery community is led by people in advanced recovery. So the best folks to help someone come off heroin is someone that's got nine years clean, you know, or two years clean. And they're, you know, we kind of have this vision that we're wounded healers. So sometimes, I, you know, I've, I heard the language growing up in the church that we're to be a voice for the voiceless. And I've come to think that there's some holes in that um, theology or that philosophy, because sometimes people are quick to be a voice for people who already have a voice, voice, but no one's listening. You know, so rather than grabbing the mic, we need to pass the mic. Rather than standing in front of people, we need to stand beside them and behind them and really uh, amplify their voices. Sometimes our biggest problem is not a compassion problem. It's a proximity problem. That we're, you know, we're, we're not really in relationship with folks who are struggling and, and, and who are really uh, having a hard time making it. So when you have people that are forming policies and ideas and running nonprofits that don't live in the neighborhood that they serve, I think that's where some of our problems arise. Um, and I, I saw that firsthand with around some of our affordable housing. Uh, I met with one of the heads of our dollar house program, which, you know, the city really publicized as, you know, we've got all these abandoned houses, so we're going to give them away for one dollar, you know, the dollar dollar house program. And it all looked good on paper. But then when you really dug deeper, you saw what you saw was that in order for a, a, a property, for a house to qualify to be on the dollar house program, they were terribly uh, in disrepair, like structurally unsound. The roof sometimes had already collapsed on them. Uh, and then on the other side, in order to qualify 
to receive a, a dollar house, you had to be below the Section 8 affordable housing requirements. So essentially, we're giving the worst houses in the city to the people with the least income. Uh, and that just doesn't work. You know, the director of that program said, I got this, I took this job because I wanted to get folks with low income. I wanted to help them get houses. And, you know, the deck's stacked against us. We're just, uh, aren't able to do it without making some changes. So that's, a, you know, I, I think that's why we've got to be in relationship with the people who are suffering from these injustices that we hope to heal. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you are aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. I really like your idea of proximity, you know, and how that is so critical for the work that you are doing. And so for your nonprofit, obviously, again, you have a lot of things, but specifically with a simple way, how do you integrate your intentional communal living experience along with your nonprofit? In other words, in that maybe even personally, uh, my guess is a lot of your work blends together, you know, your nonprofit work, your work as a speaker, your work as an activist, but also your personal life is like mixed in. And there's been a lot of conversations. In fact, there's a lot of books out there about, you know, setting good boundaries healthy boundaries. I always wonder, how do you develop boundaries in your work? Because it seems to be so integrated. How do you do that? I'm guessing it's pretty difficult. <laughs> I, I would say that's fair fair enough. I, I'm not sure that the, that I'll answer this in, in the way that the, uh, the social work classes would like me to or whatever. But, you know, and I, I studied some of this in, in undergrad. And it all, you know, I get the idea of professional distance and all this. But I also, you know, I... I take a lot of my um, my uh, cues from Jesus, uh, you know, as a Christian, uh, and, and this becomes kind of tricky because almost everywhere Jesus goes, he's getting interrupted. You know, someone's pulling on his shirt and they're saying, hey, my son's sick. Would you mind coming to my house? Or, hey, we ran out of wine at our wedding. Can you help a brother out? You know, or like, you know, just one thing after another. And I mean, half of the stories of the gospel are interruptions. <laughs> Jesus is on his way somewhere and someone, you know, comes and tugs on his shirt. And, and so I, 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 on the one hand, I think that's why we want to be near to the people. And, and what I see in Jesus is this God who, who suffers with those who suffer, who lives near to the suffering of the world, who I think would flunk some of his tests on professional distance, you know, when he's sitting with a woman at the well and just listening to her story. I mean, he's he's kind of uh, profoundly trespassing over the social norms and boundaries. Uh, but on the other hand, I think Jesus does retreat. You know, he he takes space to pray and to be alone. Um, 
there's one point where there's a whole line of people that are waiting for healing. And uh, I think it's in the first chapter of Mark's gospel. And the disciples come there like, there's all these people that are waiting for you. And Jesus says, basically, well, it's time to go. You know, and, and they and they go. So, so I think that it's a, it's a very fascinating question. And um, so there there are things that we have in place in our community that try to allow us to do this, not as a sprint, but as a marathon. You know, and after 20 years there, um, I've found some of those things important. Um, you know, there are times that we share food uh, and, you know, like it show up at noon and, you know, a hundred people can get food. Uh, but there's a lot of things that we do that we 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 say you know rules rules are important but there's also a time where love and compassion cause us to you know color outside the line so you know there are times where someone shows up at our house in the middle of the night and it's raining and they need a blanket and we don't always tell them come tomorrow at 10 o'clock because that's when we're open you know so i i think it is very tricky because we do live in the community that we serve it's not uncommon for us to be walking down the block and see someone that's passing out from a heroin overdose and um like it, it literally is kind of on our front steps and that's part of also what i would say is fuels so much of my passion around social justice and trying to change some of the inequities uh dr martin luther king one, one of my great teachers and heroes he said we're all called to be the good samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch on the road to Jericho, you know, kind of nodding at this beautiful story in the gospel. And he says, but after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. <laughs> you know, maybe we need to do something about why people are ending up in the ditch to begin with. That's part of what fuels the fire in my bones on, on a lot of these issues. Now, I've heard one of your biggest influencers in your life uh, has been Mother Teresa, and I understand you had some time with her several years back. Uh, talk about your time with her. What was it like to work with her? What was it about her herself, like spending time with her, that made the biggest impact on your life and what you do now? Oh, yeah. Mother Teresa is a gem. And, I've, you know, since I'm, I'm, we're, we're connecting today down here in Tennessee, I'm looking right right across my my room that I grew up in. I have a little thing that Mother Teresa gave me. I've got a little book here that she signed for me. And I, I just had the privilege, you know, of knowing her a little bit when she was alive and working uh, in Calcutta with her. Um, I, I worked in her first mission that she started uh, in the summer of, uh, let's see, what it was right between college years. Uh, so it have been in like in 96, I think it was. But I, I worked in um, uh, the home for the destitute and dying, uh, which was her first home, and we would go into the streets every day, and we would bring in people who were uh, alone, and they were really um, um, on, on kind of in the, uh, on the last chapter of their their life, and and uh, some of them would die within days, um, and we would bring them back to the the, the clinic and. Uh, take care of them and and uh, each day you know there would be a list of on the wall of who had passed away and it sounds pretty somber but and in some ways it was but it was a powerful place where uh, uh the, the scripture says oh death where is your sting and it, i can remember when you go into the morgue uh in the home for the dying on the wall it said uh i'm on my way to heaven and when you turn around and leave, it says, thank you for helping me get here. And um, one of my friends said, 
he felt he feels like we were travel agents <laughs> between this world and the next that we were you know helping people transition we're literally holding people's hands as they're breathing their last breath so it was very holy work there's so many beautifully wise things that mother teresa said but one of them has shaped our nonprofit and our community at the simple way and that's this mother teresa said uh, what's important is not how much we do, but how much love we put into doing it. We're not called to do great things. We're, we're called to do small things with great love. It's a powerful line, and it, and it really has been formative for us around our whole ethos and charisma, you know, charism and, and DNA is what's important is not how many people we feed, but how much love people feel as we're doing it. What's important is not just how many units of affordable housing we've created this year, but uh, how much love people have felt as we've done it. So, you know, everything we're trying to do it the simple way, whether it's share food with people or uh, give out Christmas presents, uh, you know, toys at Christmas or uh, turn abandoned houses into homes, it's done in partnership. Um, with those, uh, so it's not just distant acts of charity or, you know, a bunch of volunteers from outside that are coming to give them stuff but rob them of their dignity. And so we're actually building community together. And what's important to us is, is that beautiful line of Mother Teresa, you know, can we do small things with great love? One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, here we are in the midst of an unprecedented response to racial injustice, you know, with nearly every city in America seeing protests of some type. And in your opinion, you're doing a lot of work, obviously, in Philadelphia, but throughout the country. What is your thought, like, what is underneath this intense response? Like, what's the reason why we're seeing such unrest right now? What would you say to that? Wow. Well, I think this is an amazing moment to be alive right now. Uh, w- one of my uh, older mentors, he said, you know, there's a lot of folks that look back at the uh, civil rights era and, you know, the, the movement of Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and John Lewis, you know, and say, uh, I, I wish I had lived back then. And, and he says, whatever you are doing now is what you would have been doing then. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, I, you know, I, I heard someone recently say, let's not talk about the civil rights movement. Let's talk about the ongoing movement for civil rights and justice. And what what is happening, I think, is just the newest iteration of that, you know, generations long struggle to deal with our history. And, you know, Dr. King had this uh, powerful image that our history can be like an untreated wound that festers and I think you know those that our history of uh, racism of of slavery of what we did to indigenous people um, continues to have a a deep residue Uh, and we can't get our future right until we get our history right. Wow. Well, my guest today is Shane Claiborne, a speaker, a community activist, and nonprofit leader. You know, Shane, if people want to find out more about you, your work, The Simple Way, Red Letter Christians, where are the places they could find out more information about each? Absolutely. I'm pretty active on the social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter. Folks can just look at my name on, on Facebook and Twitter, Shane Claiborne, um, shaneclaiborne.org. Uh, and then for our local work, the simpleway.org and for my other nonprofit that I help uh, organize it's uh, redletterchristians.org
Well, Shane, just a fascinating conversation with you. And I know, again, you have a lot of passion, you have a lot of heart, and you're doing a lot of good work right there, rolling your sleeves up in some of the most difficult areas of not just Philadelphia, but as you do work throughout the country and even the world, you're doing great work. Thank you for taking time to be on the show today. Thank you so much. And thanks for folks listening. I look forward to keeping the conversation going. Hey friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.